0: Um, At this time, the children and youth are invited in the back to head to classes. Good morning, welcome. Um, Good to see you all this morning. Great chance to worship together. Um, This Sunday, we are kind of continuing through this Advent series where we've been talking about encountering Emmanuel. So we've been trying to hold on to this idea of what is the knowledge that God is with us? You know, what do we do with that? And and to help us flesh that out, we've been looking not just through our our, our themes of hope, peace, joy, and love, but we have been looking at uh, different, I've I've been calling them groups, but really they're characters in the Jesus story or characters in the, the Christmas story, if you will. And so in these characters, we see that God has an intentional plan. So as as God is unearthing and leaving, as Jesus is leaving heaven to come to earth, and God's kind of unearthing this mystery of his son coming by, we see these different characters in the story. But what I've really enjoyed about these characters is that we've said that Advent or or, or incarnation specifically shouldn't just be thought of as like an invasion or or God intrusion, right? I I heard one, one, one scholar call it a holy intrusion, right? But, but more than intrusion, I think it's, it's God's implementation, right? It's God's intentional implementation of his plan. And one of the ways we kind of hold that is that the groups that we've studied were all doing what they normally do. You know, most, uh, I mean, all of them actually aren't necessarily doing anything outside of the extraordinary, and that's where God meets them. And again, that's a reminder to us that we don't need to maybe clean ourselves up or we don't need to make sure that like, hey, I've got it together, now I can live for God, right? But that God meets us in the ordinary, that God meets us where we are, and that God can use your everyday things that you do to bring glory to him. So so to flesh out hope, we talked about the prophets. And again, the, 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 the prophets of the Old Testament especially. Especially, they came to shed light on injustice. They came to shed light on what God has done. They came to shed light on uh, what God will do. But, but when God uses them to unearth the story of Jesus, he uses them to remind them, of, hey, I've made these promises to you. I made a promise to Abraham. I made a promise to Moses. I made a promise to David. I made this promise that the Messiah would come from your line. So the prophets then, in in giving the people hope, would not just recount how God's been faithful, how God will be faithful, but it kind of oriented them to this idea that Messiah is coming, right? And so for us, what we learn from that is that we can actually have hope because of what God's done right? And because of what God's done, we can trust that God encounters us in the present as we look forward to the future as well. The same thing with the angels, right? Like the angels, they worship God. How amazing it is that I think we say that's our job, right? Like that's, that's kind of what, you know, like in him we move and have our being and our, our job is to worship God. But we struggle with that. And how great is it to be the angels? They, they don't struggle, they just worship God. Like, that's what they do, and, and it's beautiful, and, and so, so the angels, their interruptions of, of worship with God in heaven comes when God gives them a message to come to earth, and I think it's fascinating to look at the angels, because every time they seem to show up, someone's terrified, right, someone's afraid, like, I, just, I feel like it would be good to walk in a room, you are walking in a room, like, do not be afraid, you know, but it's like, that's what happens every time. But what's beautiful about the angels is that though they might be terrifying and, and awe, awestrucking, or I don't think that's a word, they make you awe-struck, right? But every single time people move from fear to peace in this Jesus story, right? They move from like, I don't know what's going on, I'm terrified, to God literally saying that I have a message of peace to you. A reminder to us that no matter how scary life seems, no matter what we're going through, we have a God who has a message of peace. And last we look at the shepherds who said, hey, they were just out at night watching their sheep, you know. Maybe they were the shepherds who were given the sheep that goes to the temple, but it was a regular night, and the angels show up, and they find Jesus, and they get to joy. Well, well tonight or this morning, we're going to look at this group that's really, really fascinating because for the first time, God is going to go outside of Israel in the story. He's going to go out. Well, I would say outside of heaven in a sense because you're not talking about the angels, and he's going to go outside of the kingdom, To bring in this mysterious group called Magi. And in the story of these Magi, we're going to learn how God brings love to us in the coming of Jesus. Again, we've been asking the same question just changing the theme every week. But as we go through this passage this morning, I want you to ask yourself and consistently write down, you know, how does encountering Emmanuel bring love? How does the idea that God is with us and me encountering that, how does that bring love from God to me, from God to our world, from God through me, from God in me? If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. I'll be reading the first 12 verses. We'll also have it up front so you can follow there as well. Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. During the time of King Herod, magi or wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard that this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. They return to their country by another route. Let's pray together. Our Father, God, we thank you so much. That you are indeed the God of love, the God of love who so loved us that you have sent your son, who so loved us that now you send your spirit to come to us, to live inside of us, to reveal to us what you're doing, not only in us and through us, but in our world as well. God of love, we thank you that your love is not something that's meant to be defended or held on to selfishly, but this love that you've given us is meant to point us to the light that this love you've given us is meant to be shared with our world that this love you've given us is meant to shine wherever there's darkness wherever there's brokenness wherever there needs to be healing wherever there needs to be reconciliation that this love that you've given us lord that not only is it meant to shine because of your light but it's meant to shine in and through us too so god help us to be people who not only hold on to your love but live to share it too that live to give it to our world, that live to give it to our people, to to the people that we interact with, our family, our friends, our, our people in our workplaces. Help us to be carriers of your love. And God, lastly, we thank you that you have chosen to send us out. So we pray now that we may be your love to our world in how we live, in how we speak, in how we love, in how we interact. Lord, in all things, may we glorify you by pointing people back to you, the light, but by giving the love to them that you've given to us. In your holy and precious name, amen. So Matthew, when he starts his his, his writing of his gospel, he's kind of primary focus, you will. If you want to say, what is Matthew's ultimate aim that he's doing here? Matthew wants his readers to know that Jesus is king. That is his ultimate aim of Matthew. He's writing this gospel to say Jesus is king. Now, other gospels have different things. There's some gospels where it's like, one gospel is like, Jesus is man, right? There's another gospel would like, Jesus is God. But for Matthew, he wants you to know that Jesus is king. And how he does that is he begins with the genealogy of Jesus. Now, most of us, this is not the exciting part, right? Like, when you see genealogy in the Bible, most of us, your eyes gloss over. Like with Matthew, like at least it's only one chapter. Some parts of the Old Testament it just keep going and going and going. But for Matthew, it's significant because in making this case that Jesus is king, the first thing he wants to show is that Jesus is king of the Jews. So how do you show that Jesus is the rightful king of the Jews? You say that he is the son of David. David is still their greatest king. David, To this day, David is the greatest king Israel's ever known. You might say Solomon's the richest, but the most influential, at least the one they like to claim, is David, right? Solomon gets hard to, you know, it's hard to claim, right? But David's good, right? Most of the time. But David is their greatest king. So what he does is he breaks down this genealogy to show how Jesus is going to come from the line of David. Because if he's going to make a claim that Jesus is king and Jesus is king of the Jews, he has to bring him through the hereditary line, right? And one of the fascinating things is that Matthew and Luke do this differently. Matthew does it by going through Solomon to say, like, listen, Jesus is royalty, like, he is the son that deserves everything. And, and Luke, when he does it, he actually goes through Mary's line, right? So instead of ending at Joseph, he ends at Mary and says, listen, Jesus is not just royalty, but he's also the priest, the great high priest, right? But in Matthew's gospel, what he's trying to sit here is that Jesus is king. But the other fascinating thing is that, you know, he has 14 generations and 14 generations. And, and some scholars are like, yes, you know what that is? That's because seven is the perfect number. And so Matthew wanted to prove that seven times two is 14, that Jesus is doubly perfect, now, that doesn't make sense in my English head. Like, like, if I'm an English teacher, like, how can you be doubly perfect, right? Like, you're either perfect or you're not perfect, right? So, like, it doesn't make sense, right? But I think it's because a lot of times, especially in the 20th century, we were taught to read the Bible as like this clue book, right? It's just like this thing you're trying to unwrap and unravel, right? But I think all Matthew is trying to say is that there's a certain amount of time and in this amount of time this is what we learn about Jesus and what do we learn we learn that not only is he king of the Jews but he's king of the world and Matthew does this expertly and I think the way he does it is by including four women now for most of us we're just like yeah you include women it's not a big deal it's a huge deal Back in those days, there's tons of records of other genealogies. It never includes women. And much less with what Luke does, where he actually makes the genealogy of Mary. That never happens. Why is this significant? It's significant because God wants to say that I'm not just the God of the Jewish men. I'm the God of the Jewish men and women. I'm not just the God of men. I'm the God of men and women. And here's the other beautiful thing is that men and women have a part to play, and they've played a part in how my son comes here. How does he flesh out the Jesus king of the world? Because we're introduced to four women in this genealogy and their stories of redemption here. Both Tamar and Bathsheba have godly men or so-called godly men, right, who sin against them. And not only does God redeem their story, but he says, listen, I see you. I see what you've been through. What happened to you doesn't determine your destiny. And your destiny is to be included in the line of my son. This is incredible. This is a shame culture where even if it's not your fault and something happened to you, like you get branded as bad forever. Yet Matthew elevates and says, no, 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 God redeemed their story and God's going to include them in the genealogy. Here's another one that proves that Jesus is the God of all people. It includes Ruth, who's from Moab, and it includes Rahab, who's from Jericho. So even the most Jewish king ever has blood that's not just purely Israelite blood, the reminder to us that God was never, never just interested in a a bloodline or a hereditary people, right? That God is interested in the people who, yes, they might be near, but they might come from afar, but do they bow down, do they worship, do they believe in him? And if Rahab, who was an enemy in Jericho, remember the walls came down, right? And Ruth, who's from Moab, who were ancient enemies for generations, if they can be included in the family of Jesus, how much more does God need to prove that you belong to his family too? So Matthew's going to set up this thing. It's like, I want you to know that Jesus is king, king of the Jews, men and women, but king of the world. And after he does that, he goes directly into the, the story of the, what we call the Christmas story, What I love is that Matthew is also not writing in a a, a vacuum. He's writing within a cultural context, right, where, where people believed, right, that their kings and royalty were either divine or touched by, by, by the, the divinity, right? So that's what they do. Like, like, and they also had like, kind of like this hero worship of their kings. I know we don't do that. We don't worship our leaders, right? Like we don't worship royalty. I know there's not a Netflix special we're watching this week because of people who are royalty but not really royalty but trying to be royalty still. We're not watching those things. We don't worship these people. We don't do that, right? We don't do that. But at the same time, they did, right? And Matthew knows this. So he's writing within this cultural, I guess, milieu, this cultural thing where he's saying that, like, yes, kings are divine or kings can be touched by God. But I want to show you how touched by God God's son is. So we meet Mary, right, the teenage girl who was faithful to God and and faithful to her her betrothed, her fiance, and faithful to her uh, uh, following her faith. And yet her story was I got, the Holy Spirit came upon me and I was pregnant. And she has to face this as a teenager, right? Like she has to face this in a culture, in a society where if someone told us that today, we'd be like, yeah, that's a good story and all, but no, right? Like she has to face all of this, but it's a reminder to us, right? That God not only chooses us, but God provides a way. And I love that Mary, right? I think it's, it's like, in one sense, Mary is so seemingly inconsequential that I think for 2,000 years, we've tried to make her more important than she is, right? Like it's just like, well, she had to be special. That's why God put her. So you have some Christians who have this theology. It's like, well, you know, she didn't sin, right? And there's some people who still call her the Virgin Mary because they're like, well, she was a virgin her whole life. She just had Jesus and that was it. And I'm like, but that's tricky because Matthew says she has other kids. You know, and without getting into the biology of it all, it's just like it just feels like that's not possible, Right? But the thing about Mary that I love is a reminder to us that God doesn't need the extraordinary to do extraordinary things. God doesn't need you to be unbelievable for him to do unbelievable things to you. And the joy of Mary is that she's faithful. Like, she's faithful, and she's young, but God uses her. And so you have Mary, who has this story of the Holy Spirit coming upon her, the reminder to us that you don't need to be up high to be used by God. Now, Mary was still part of God's plan, because remember, she's from the royal line, right? Like, that's not a coincidence, right? Like, she's still very important, but the point is that God chooses a regular teenage girl to bring his son into the world. And then there's Joseph, right? Joseph is, is, is trying to be honorable, trying to be faithful to God, right? He hears this story from Mary, and it's just like, you know, that's a good story, but I've never seen this happen before. <laughs> like, the Holy Spirit didn't come upon Martha, or he doesn't know that yet, but the Holy Spirit doesn't come upon other people either. So what we're going to do is we're just going to put you away quietly, right? And that's his entire plan. And you have to understand, though, that like part of this plan is that the shame that Mary would encounter, and she did encounter shame. I think sometimes we think she's a teenage mom, but the Spirit comes upon her. She gets support, her family and community. She still had to live in the world, Like, babies don't come, as far as I know. They don't come after a week or two, right? Like, she had to go through 36 weeks at least, right? Like, 9 to 10 months, right? Where she was literally in that world with people staring at her and be like, oh, that's the girl the Spirit came upon. Like, she had to live with that, right? Like, that's what she's going through. But Joseph, at the same time, Right? He wants to do the honorable thing of saying, like, I don't want to bring, like, more embarrassment to you and your family, so I'm going to, like, just put you away, right? And then the Holy Spirit, like, he goes to sleep, and an angel comes to him, and the angel says, no, 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 Mary's story actually checks out. Now, I don't know how that works. I'm just like, in a dream, do you go like, wow. You know, it's just like, are you passive? Are you interacting, you know? But it's like, the Holy Spirit, like, basically, the angel sends the message, like, no, no, the story checks out. But what's beautiful about about Joseph for me is that not only does the Spirit say, hey, go and make her your wife, but we have to understand that, yes, just like Mary still has to deal with the shame and the judgment of people who may not believe her, Joseph did too. Because in that culture, by bringing her into the house, essentially he's saying, if you think that's sinful, that's my sin too. Because if it wasn't his sin, what can he do? Banish her, right? Make her a single mother in in Judea and just... Hope for the best, right? But by taking her in, he's saying, no, 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 no. This is our family. This is my wife. We are in this together. And so that's Joseph we're introduced to. And in that same dream that the angel says to him, you need to call him Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. Remember who Matthew has said his people, not just the Jews, but the world. So he's building upon all of this, and he ends that with the prophecy of Isaiah, which is read. And I want to read verses 13 and 14 of Isaiah 7. So this is what the angel says. He's quoting Isaiah. He says, hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of God also? Therefore, the Lord will give you all a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which we've learned means God with us. So the kings are not just touched by the divine, but the king of kings is divine. He's birthed through the Holy Spirit in a virgin birth. He's birthed through a father, an earthly father, who's going to care for him by literally saying, I belong to Mary as she belongs to me. We are a family. And he's birthed with this destiny of saving all the world from their sins by being God with us. And so when we get to chapter 2, we learn that Jesus has been born, right? He's born in Bethlehem, which is significant. Talked about Bethlehem before, it's like it's the house of bread, it's a small town in the middle of nowhere. But what's fascinating is if Matthew is making this claim that Jesus is king, it helps that the king would be born in David's hometown. So Bethlehem might be the equivalent of Simon's town, right? But it's like that's important because if you're going to say David is my great, 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 however many greats father, it will make sense that you're from the town of David. So again, you see how the prophecy all is tying in. Jesus is born in Bethlehem in Judea. And in our passage, we read what Micah said, right? And I want to read that in its entirety too because in Micah, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, Micah says this, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans and rulers of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. So Jesus is born in Bethlehem, according to prophecy. His kingship can't be challenged because he's from the line of David. He's born in the town of David. But also, he, as he comes onto the scene, is born to fulfill both the prophecies of Isaiah and Micah. And then we get the Magi. And if you are an ancient person listening to the story or Matthew recount the story, this is what we call a plot twist right? Everyone so far has been either very much a Jew of all the Jews, right? Or an angel. That's your two options so far, right? Like when we start off with Mary, we'll like, not only is she, you know, this, this, this person who's chosen by God, but she's from the line of David. Joseph, he's from the line of David. The angels, they worship God, right? The shepherds, they're actually providing the sheep that goes to the temple. Everyone is the Jew of all Jews. And then you get the Magi. are not just from the east but at best so far they're pagans they're not followers of God and remember what we said in the beginning of Matthew that he wants to prove that Jesus is king of all the people and how he chooses by that is choosing these magi now like we did with the shepherd last week I think we have to kind of Take a step back from what we understand about the Magi. We've Christianized them for 2,000 years, right? We've made them kings. You know, we've made them like faithful followers. And and we've kind of dumbed down maybe a little bit what they really were. But who were these magi? Well, the magi were Persian astrologers. Now, I learned this week there's a difference between astrology and astronomy, right? Like, like, astronomy back then and astrology went together. So astronomy would be the science of studying the celestial bodies and everything up there. Astrology is, like, studying that but then saying it has direct effect with, like, human affairs, right? When I was growing up, there was this lady on TV called Madame Cleo. Like, three of you might remember that, right? Like it's just like, you call that number, and she would tell you what's happening because she looked into the ball or whatever, right? Like, that's, that's more what we think of astrology. Well, back then, these were actually philosophers and studiers of, of, of the celestial bodies. And, and what's important about the Magi is that they started off, right, as a group of people in the Persian Empire who wanted power, right? And they tried the politics game and failed miserably and got killed, and then they all became priests, after right and that relates to me because my family tried a politics game we got killed and we're like we'll be pastors sound much better you know like let's try let's try this pastoring thing out for a while right but like that that's who these magi were so not only are they wise men but they're well respected not just in persia but in the world because you have to remember that after israel falls to babylon and assyria not everyone makes it back to jerusalem so there's still Jews in the area, so they would have heard a thing or two about this Messiah, right, because they were priests. The further thing is that they not only did philosophy, medicine, and science, they were known as truth seekers and truth tellers. Now, if you were going to put a star in the sky that would lead to your sun, what group on earth would know more about the stars in the sky than these magi? So even though they're outside of the kingdom, God says, you're the experts on this, I'm going to blow your mind, right? I'm going to put something that you can't explain, and that thing is going to lead you to my son. And what's even more beautiful about that is that, you know, over church history now, we've we've kind of struggled with where these magi are from. Remember we said with, with, with Joseph and Mary, there's a good chance it wasn't just the two of them traveling, right? Some of these Magi, depending on where we can theorize they're from, there's some people who believe that one Magi was as far, or one group of Magi, I guess I should say, was as far as the Siam Peninsula, which would put you in like Thailand, right? There's some people who say, no, there's one from India, right? There's some people who say Ethiopia or Kush, right? All these places are really far. So what I want us to hold on to is this idea that the Magi aren't just traveling for a week, right? Like some of them could have been traveling for two years following this star in the sky trying to figure out what's going on, right? So, so their job was to not only know all of this, right, but to actually explain things. But they can't explain this one. So they follow it, maybe for up to two years, maybe in a big group. And when they get to Washington, D.C., you call it Jerusalem, right? The first thing they want to know is like, where is this king? Like, we've been on the road for a long time. Where is this king? And someone should have been like, you need to go to Shiremanstown. That's where he is, right? But word gets to Herod, right? And we have to actually takes a little bit of time to explain who this Herod is, because when they come, they follow the star. They think they've reached the capital city. So obviously, kings are born in palaces, right? Like that makes sense, right? Like you don't born king in stables. You born them in palaces. So they're like, "Where is this king?" Word spreads. It gets to Herod, and if you don't know who Herod is, it, it's it's pretty much the the polar opposite of Jesus right like Herod and his family ruled for four generations and, and part of Herod's heritage is that he's an Edomite meaning that he was a half Jew but his his what he claimed was his Edomite blood which is like descendants from Esau the Edomites were it's hard to call them ancient enemies of Israel because they never won there's almost no time in the Old Testament where the Edomites are better than Israel. No matter what Israel's going on to, they can always be like, ha-ha, you know, like, Jacob won, Esau. Like, at every given time, the Edomites were underneath the Israelites, right? Like, in the time of David, especially the time of Solomon, when the Babylonians and Syrians come, they're always on the outside, right? In fact, even after the, the Israel falls, Edom comes back into Israel. And, and the, 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 the Jewish people are so sick—not sick—, not, not sick they're so disgusted, that's probably a better word, for, about the Edomites. You know what they told them? They're like, listen, you can come back in. But before you're a full Israelite, you got to go to four generations. So think about that for a second. <laughs> come back into the family, right? But for you to count, it's not you. It's not your child. It's not your grandchild. It's not your great-grandchild. Your great-great-grandchild has a chance to be into the family. So this is what the Jewish people, the Israelites, thought of the Edomites, right? So the fact that Herod is an Edomite, think about the angst they have. After years of maybe mistreatment and devaluing of the Edomites, now they have a guy on their throne who's an Edomite, who's put into power by the Romans to be a puppet king, right? So he was collecting taxes for Rome, but the thing about Herod is that he was so ambitious and so ruthless, if you even looked or thought about taking his power, he would kill you. Kill the next wife, kill two or three of his children, There's some rumors that he killed some priests, right? And in fact, the night when he got to be 70 years old and he thought death was near, he passed a law that said, listen, there's about 20, 30 people who are really, really important. I want you to kill all of them when I die, right? Because that's how much this guy wanted power and wanted to do everything for blood, right? But yet and still, God comes into that scene. God comes and these, these magi go to this person who was so disturbed that he would kill all his rivals, right? And, and so there's a phrase in this passage in Matthew where it says that, that Herod was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him, right? And I think Herod was disturbed because it was just like, wait, who is this rival? And we learn later in Matthew, what did he do? He kills all the babies from Jewish like two years and under, right? Like this is the person we're dealing with. But you also have to realize that Jerusalem is disturbed too because they know this guy is not okay, they know like anything that, that threatens this thing is going to kill people. So this is what Jesus is coming in. So Herod then says, okay, I need to find out more about this Jesus. So he gathers his scholars, his chief priests and Pharisees. And, and what's fascinating is that the group he gathers are basically the Jewish or the Israelite example of the Magi, right? They're an aristocratic, rich, wealthy, knowledgeable class. And they come to him, they're like, yeah, I mean, there's like a passage in Micah, He's going to be born in Bethlehem and, you know. You have to understand, Bethlehem is not that big, right? So it's like, even though they are named him the exact place, if he wanted and really cared to worship Jesus, he could find out where Jesus was. But that was not his intent. So he gets all these people together. He finds out where it is. Then he goes and meets secretly with the Magi and says, I want you to just go and find him and then tell me, right, so I can come and worship him. Magi don't know any better, right? So they're like, that sounds good. We'll let you know. But what I love And maybe the reminder to us here is that maybe for up to two years, they're led by the light until they get to Jerusalem. But then something happens because in Jerusalem, instead of following the light to Jesus, they take their eyes off the light and start asking the people for direction. I think that's significant because it's a reminder to us that we can have 10 years, 20 years, 30 years of following Jesus and following the light. But the minute we take our eyes off the light and start looking to our world for direction, we just might be led astray. We just might be led into danger. We just might be putting other people into danger, right? And, 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 but God sees that. And after they meet with Herod, what did it happens? They take their eyes, they look back at the light. And that light leads them to baby Jesus. And when they get to Jesus, they're overjoyed. They greet Mary, they worship Jesus, they open their treasure chest, right? And they give them gold and frankincense and myrrh. And people have been like, yeah, this proves, like, where they're from, right? So there's some people who be like, listen, if you're from Canada and you're greeting the king, you give them maple syrup, right? If you're from Hershey, you meet the king, you give them Hershey Kisses, right? If you're from Harrisburg, you give them a scoop of the Susquehanna, right? It's just like, here we are, man, here we are, yeah? I'm just saying, that's what we got, you know? If you find something better, let me know. I'll put it in the next sermon, you know? <laughs> But, yeah, so it's like some people think that the gifts were representative of where they were from. There's some people who says, listen, there might be a ton of magi. In fact, the Ethan Orthodox, they don't have three kings. They think there's 12, right? So those people think there's a gift, but the three represents something. So some people say it represents the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. I'm like, if that's what you want to sleep at night, that sounds great to me, right? There's some people who think though it represents the roles that Jesus is going to play, right? For his people, he's going to be a prophet, a priest, and the king. Sounds good to me, too. Sleep at night on that one. There's some people who will say that it also represents oh, Jesus becoming man in body, soul, and spirit. Then there's the one that's kind of like, oh, held on is this idea that they gave him gold. Why? Because he's the king of all kings, right? They gave him frankincense. Why? Be- frankincense. Why? Because he's the, the, the great high priest. And they gave him myrrh as a reminder that he's going to die. Now, I don't know about you, but when I had a kid, if you give me embalming fluid, I would not feel blessed. You know, just like, Congratulations on your kid. Here's some embalming fluid, you know? But I think, though, even greater than, than the gifts they give and the reasons why they give it, my, my, my youngest daughter actually reminded me about gifts this week, right? We were driving in a car, and she was like, Daddy, I want to tell you what Christmas is about. I was like, ooh, I know this game. It's going to end in presents. You know, like, I know where we're going with this one. And she was just like, Christmas is about Jesus or God sending Jesus for us. And I was just like, ooh, a theologian and a present seeker this Is great, let's, let's 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 develop this more. I was like, What do you mean? She goes, Well, Jesus comes in so that we're all okay, right? I was like, Awesome, that's that's great. She goes, Oh, and we get presents. I was like, We were doing so well, we we're doing so well, like we we're ready for seminary, and now it's like we're back to being you know six years old, right? So we we're ready for seminary, right? And, 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 and so I'm like, Yeah, yeah, I guess that's part of it too. But she's like, She's curious, right? So she was just like, But daddy, and I was just like, Oh, well, I mean, I thought we were ended, you know, she was, she's like, But daddy. Why do we get gifts on Jesus' birthday? And I've been stuck on that for four or five days now, right? I've been thinking about that because here's the thing, right? We can say Jesus is the reason for the season. We can say Jesus is the gift of the season. But for a lot of us, Christmas is about we giving gifts to others, right? And so I've been thinking about that, and I I, I realized something just really, really simple. Maybe, just maybe, when we think about Christmas this year, as we get ready to celebrate next week, Maybe, just maybe, we need to look at the Magi and see what we can learn from them. And maybe we take a step back and say, okay, God, what do I have that I can give to you? Right? And it might be something that you can't really put your arms around, like all of me. Right? Like, like, that sounds good. That's the right answer. God, I give you all of me. Right? But maybe it's something that's more material that's representative of who you are, where you're from. Right? Maybe it's a scoop of the Susquehanna. I don't know. I don't know. That's not me. That's between you and God. You figure that part out. Right? But the point I'm making is that, that what do we have that we can offer to God to tell God, thank you for who he is. for thank you for, for what Your sending, your son has done for me. What do we have that we can offer to God in this season? Because I think when we look at the Magi, we learn that, yes, God is always present with us. God always surprises us, that, that God meets us where we are, that God works with what we have, right? That God's plan is going to use even our regular things, right? But what do we have to give to God? Because if the magi who are pagans and from the east and outside the faith are willing to come to the light and follow the light and worship the light and give gifts to the light, how much more should we, who are now children of the king, sons and daughters of the king, who've been died for, who Jesus shed his blood for, whose Holy Spirit lives inside of us, whose church is all around us, how much more should we be offering to God? And so when we ask this question, how does encountering Emmanuel bring love? I think the question has to be, it has to remind us that love shines in the dark. So as we think about what does God, what can we offer us back to God is, God, what light have you placed in me that I can go out there to shine in darkness? Because God's love has to also remind that it needs to be shared. I think there's so much of our faith that we think it's about holding on to God, right? And that's good. But if you're holding on to God, it's harder to share God. If you're holding on to God, it's harder to worry about how other people are experiencing and seeing God. If you're holding on to your possessions, you're not sharing them. And if we do the same thing about the love of God, we are not worshiping God. So whether it's our gifts, whether it's all of ourselves, whether it's our resources, everything that we have, are we living to share the love of God, how God has loved us? Because here's the thing, just like the Magi are sent out, remember, they're met where they are, God works with what they have, they come to the light, and then God does what? He sends them back out. All of us, every single day that we wake up, are being sent out by God. And so if you're being sent out by God, how are you sharing the love of God with your world? That's the question I want us to hold on to, right? When we encounter the is with us, that's beautiful, that's great, that's comforting, that's gracious, that's merciful. But how are you sharing that with your family, with your friends, with your coworkers, with the people you walk down the street with? How are you taking the light that God's given you and actually sharing it with others? I'd like to invite up Pastor Hannah. We're going to have communion at the end of our service this morning. Um, If you came in this morning, there was elements at the door. If you didn't pick them up or receive them, just raise your hand. We have a couple of people in the back, a couple of deacons who can run out and get you. Just keep your hand up. They'll find you. Um yeah, so I think we have one up front too. So yeah, again, we, we ask that, you know, you don't have to be a member of this church to take communion, but we do ask that you're a member of God's church and you put your faith in Jesus Christ. We have a little bit of liturgy we'll do up front. So just keep your hands up and we'll try to get it to you. We now invite you to come to this table, not because we must, but because we may. We come to testify. Kevin, Kevin, can I get one of them? (laughs) We'll go back again. We We now invite you to come to this table, not because we must, but because we may. We come to testify, not that we are perfect, but that we sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. We come, not because we are strong, but because we are weak not because we have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in our frailty, we stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help.
1: We come not only to remember his death, but also his resurrection and promise to return. Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before us, let us lift up our minds and hearts above all selfish fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to us the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit.
0: Please join us now together in a responsive reading for communion as taken from Ephesians chapter 3.
1: We pray that out of God's glorious riches, he will strengthen us with power through his spirit and in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith.
0: And we pray that we will be rooted and established in love. We pray to grasp as best as we can how wide and long and high and deep Christ's love is.
1: With all the fullness of God. To God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever.
0: One way we seek to nurture Christ's dwelling in our hearts is through share in the Lord's Supper together. Please join me now for this reading. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for your deep, deep love for us. How you so love the world that you intentionally put forth this plan to bring in all your sons and daughters to you. God, you're a God of redemption. God, you're a God of salvation. God, you're a God who writes the story anew and you did it through Jesus our Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your body, that you gave it up for us, that you were broken, that you were beaten, that you suffered, that you died so that we can be set free, so that we can be cleansed, so that we can be now righteous in God's eyes. Lord, for your sacrifice, we thank you for your love. Holy Spirit, for convicting us and calling us to you, we thank you. Lord, thank you so much that you so freely and willingly, lovingly died for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Please join me now. My, my sisters and brothers, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ?
1: This bread which we break is the communion of the body of
0: Christ. Take and eat this bread, remembering he was born to be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your hearts and be thankful.
1: In the same way after the supper, he took the cup, which in the Jewish Passover feast is called the cup of blessing. And he told his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. God, thank you for your son. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. We uh, praise you, Lord, that during this season um, and Lord as we come to the table together um, we do so in reverence and respect of you Um, and Lord we also do it in celebration of you thank you that we can have both of those things together Um, thank you Lord that we can um, grieve um, the the lamb and also praise the lion at the same time so Lord um, we thank you for your blood that was shed for us may we um, share that joy, um, the peace, love, Lord, the hope that we have gained through that blood. Amen. My brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ?
0: This cup of blessing which we bless is the communion of the blood of Christ.
1: Take this cup remembering that he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful.
0: At this time, I want to invite up the choir for our closing song. Um, Any of the pastors in the room like to invite you up as well. Stand up front for prayer. We'd love to pray for you. Um, If there's anything you want to respond to in the service or anything you've got going on, we'd love to pray for that as well. Um, as we sing this last song, may we just be reminded of the blessing of God's love and a call for us to share with one another. So let's stand and sing together.